Howdy, y'all. This is the Words of Truth from the Scriptures podcast. I'm Brian Yeager. I'm glad you've tuned in. So today, we're going to talk about the parable of the fireman. And you might be wondering, what in the world does that mean? Well, just hold on and we'll get to it and you'll see exactly where we're going to go. We're going to just have a little parable and talk about some applications uh, from it, some things that we can learn and think about in the Scriptures. So First, I want to start off in Matthew chapter 13. After Jesus teaches a parable about a seed sower to a great multitude, but before he explained it, there's a question and an answer, and, and this is kind of important as we're going to be talking about a parable today. So in Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore, speak God to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross." And their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. So just remember, the question is, why speakest unto them in parables? And when you look at what he says, quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, sometimes people don't see things very clearly. Parables sometimes help illustrate, right? It's an illustration, a story that helps somebody to, to understand that maybe isn't seeing things from time to time. Um, and the many years that I've been teaching, which compared to other people may not be many, uh, compared to others may be many, many, uh, there are times where I try to illustrate a lesson, show somebody some scriptures and they're not seeing it quite as clear as they could. So put something out there to help them understand it, like in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, to cause them to have the understanding, to see it. Uh, when we talk about parables, Jesus taught many things by parables. And Mark 4, 1 and 2, he began again to teach by the sea, and there gathered unto him a great multitude. So they entered a ship and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said to them in his doctrine, etc. It goes on. Parables were clear enough that people were able to see things, understand like, hey, he's talking to me here. In Matthew 21, 45 and 46, when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him from a prophet. And then when you go into chapter 22, Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables. So he, he didn't stop. He continued to teach. They perceived, hey, he's talking to me. Well, what is a parable? We, we see it in passages like in Luke 6, 39, the word he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? What is a parable there? What does it mean? Well, if you were to take the word as it's used in Luke 6, 39, and you don't have to be a Greek scholar, you could use the book Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and, 
in the back of that book, you know, first of all, you you look up the word parable, you'd look at the Strong's number that that verse appears in, and then in the back of the book, you would turn to the Greek section. It would be Strong's number 3850. It means a similitude, a parable, symbolically a fictitious narrative of common life conveying a moral or an adage, comparison, figure, a proverb. So that's what we're talking about. Like, hey, somebody's giving me a story to help me understand something. But, you know, not just being a storyteller. There are many sermons that I've heard over the years, and maybe you have heard similar, where the scriptures aren't highlighted, but some guy just gives this long story, and then maybe he throws out one passage of scripture, and there's really no depth or teaching uh, to it. Where a, a, a parable, a story that's productive in teaching, is a targeted method of teaching. It's not just, let me talk about a cat that ran up a tree uh, and fill time and then throw out one scripture that just means absolutely nothing to nobody. Parables targeted. In Luke 15, uh, verses 1 through 3, then drew near unto him, that is, unto Jesus, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth them. And he spake this parable unto them. And when you read through Luke chapter 15, you could see that Jesus then speaks three parables to people who were accusing him of eating with sinners. They were missing that Jesus wasn't just out for lunch or dinner. He was teaching. So he taught the parable of the lost sheep, coin, and son uh, to, to make an illustration, to, to teach. And Luke 18, if you just look a couple of chapters later, he spake a parable unto certain which trusted themselves that were righteous and despised others. Luke 18 and verse 9. Well, what was that parable? Beginning in verse 10, he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. So you could see where Jesus isn't just, hey, let me make up some fun uh, story and run with it. No, that, that's not at all what, what, he's, uh, what he's doing. He's teaching a targeted method of storytelling. When we look at the parable of the fireman that we're talking about today, that's, that's our goal. That's our goal, is to look at a story that's going to have a targeted method. And sometimes, and certainly my intent with the parable of the fireman is to get people to question things and think about things. And that the point of parables, like Jesus teaches a parable, and then in Matthew 15, 15, Peter answered and sent him, declare unto this unto us this parable. Well, I don't want to be unclear in my parable, so I'm going to give some explanation. But at the same time, uh, as we look at this particular uh, parable, I'm going to explain it and, and put some scriptures there. But maybe somebody's going to listen and going to say, wait a minute. I've never heard this, or I've never thought about it 
in this particular way. See, people often, when they look at the scriptures, they highlight one subject or one thing, and they miss the other moving parts. They miss greater context. They miss contributions that are, are being made to a particular event or occasion of teaching because sometimes people get short-sighted and only see one aspect of a particular thing. So the parable of the fireman, as we look at it today, is going to be this. A house is on fire. There's a woman that's alone in this house. She's in her upstairs bedroom. All the exits are blocked. She's surrounded by fire. She can't see any way out. She has a cell phone because, you know, today we live in an age period where everybody has a cell phone. So she calls 911. She asks for help. She's afraid because nothing's going to, to happen, she, she thinks. She thinks she's going to burn up. She thinks she's going to die. Well, she hears sirens outside, but the window is at the other end of the bedroom, and that side of the bedroom is completely on fire. Smoke is filling the room, and she can hardly breathe. She's on the floor. The fire is closing in on her. To her, all hope seems lost. Then she hears a crashing sound, and air sucks through the room, and a hole opens up, and she sees daylight behind a certain area in the room. She looks. There's a fireman popping his head through a wall, hole that he has made in the wall with an axe and other tools. He tells her to come to him, but she's about to be unconscious. She doesn't have very much strength, so she has to, to deeply reach within and she stumbles towards him. As she gets to the hole in the wall, it's tight, and he can't come all the way in to get her, but she's able to get to that hole, and he has his arms out, and he says, come, come to me. I'll carry you down. So she reaches her arms towards him, grabs a hold of the fireman, and after various measures are taken, he brings her down to safety delivers her into the hands of the medics. They treat her for smoke and everything else that she has encountered in this house fire. The headline in the newspaper is the fireman saved her. Wait a minute. I want you to think about something. Did the fireman save her? Or did the 911 operator save her? Did the fireman save her, or did she actually look to the hole in the wall, make her way through a terrible environmental mess to the fireman, and save herself? I mean, after all, she had to reach deep within and use her strength, right? Her faith in the fireman's words, come unto me, got her to her feet brought her across the room. Hmm. Which is it? Did the 911 operator save her? Did the fireman save her? Did she save herself? 
let, let's think about Jesus for a moment. A little bit different than us calling 911. You know, none of us were alive. Shock, right? Here's a revelation for you. None of us were alive in the first century, right? Oftentimes, uh, people will look at the scriptures and they'll read passages as though they're written to them, like in Romans chapter 5, when it, it says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, they were alive. I wasn't. And Romans 5 and verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we should be saved by His life. They were alive. They were without strength. They were enemies. Now, there's application to be made today, but not as direct as it was to them, right? You understand that. Well, this woman called 911. You and I have done nothing that brought Jesus into this world. I didn't have an active role in that. I didn't call 911. You didn't call 911 to bring the firefighter, so to speak, right? And in fact, even in the first century, when we look at 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son in the world, that we might live through Him here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and has sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So people that were alive in the first century, guess what? You didn't bring Jesus into the world. The Father sent Him. However, like the firefighter, now the difference between the parable and our lives is we didn't make the call. God sent. Right? But where we have a similarity is Jesus comes to the world, offers salvation to those that are lost, and like this woman who had to find her way to the firefighter, there are things required of us. To simplify it, not, not the whole lesson in itself, Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. My faith has to cause me to seek, diligently seek, and find my Lord. In fact, when you look at other scriptures, you have to fight for it. I mean, I, I think of this terrible picture as, as I was uh, creating this parable. I thought, man, it's terrible. I, I don't know about you, but thinking about fire surrounding me does not at all sound fun. And, and smoke and everything else that's going on, I've just got a terrible picture in my head. You'd fight to find that exit, right? Well, Luke 13, 23 and 24... And then said one of them, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter into the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. So fight, fight to enter in. Fight for salvation. Seek it. And, and not just when you're lost and you're initially coming to our Lord, but even after you've obeyed the gospel and have become a Christian, Colossians 3, 1-4 says that they, they them been risen with Christ, 
Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall also appear with him in glory. It's a continual seeking. Like this woman, when she finds her way to that hole in the wall, she doesn't just say, hey, I'm good. No, she got to get a hold of that fireman. And she's going to hold on for dear life all the way down that ladder and through all the measures uh, that are used. Think about back when the earth was destroyed by water in the days of Noah. Hebrews 11 and verse 7, if you just go from verse 6, right, the very next verse, says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Noah had faith, and that faith moved him. He did something. He built the ark. And, 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 and this is a simplification of the verse, right? It wasn't like he built the ark and then sat down. No, he got on it. He got all the animals on there the way that God uh, commanded him to do. He did everything that God wanted of him. He put in the work. Why? Because he had faith. Just like this woman who says, I I've got faith. I've got faith. I, I, I believe that if I make it to the firefighter, I will be saved. But not just getting to the hole in the wall and saying, hey, buddy, how you doing? Cool. Glad I'm saved. No, that fire is going to catch her. It's going to kill her. That smoke is going to kill her, etc., etc. If she doesn't get into the arms of that firefighter, and then after she's in the arms of that fighter, continue all the way down. And she has to keep fighting for her life. Even in, in medical care, right? She can't just say, well, I'm in the hands of the EMTs. I'm just going to go ahead and surrender my will to live. Look, Jesus saves. Acts 15, 11. And in this context, uh, by the way, Peter is recalling the conversion of Cornelius and his household that happened in Acts 10 as they're discussing a problem that arose in Antioch where certain had gone down from Judea and had taught the Christians in Antioch that they needed to keep the law of Moses and circumcision. Well, Peter in Acts 15.11 says, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they... Notice this. He's looking forward. We shall be saved even as they... Uh, it's not like, hey... Once I get to the hole in the wall and I see my Savior, in that case the fireman, in our case Jesus, I'm there, I've arrived. Sometimes we look at the Scriptures and we just think, I just need to get to the hole. I'm not indicting you or myself. I don't look at it that way. But, but mankind tends to get caught up maybe in just one moving part. And they don't think about the hole. Like, is often people want, want you to tell them, hey, what do I have to do to be saved? And, and hey, simplify it. Keep it short for me. Get, give me this, this quick step. And reason gets lost. Like, for example, if someone says, I'm hungry, and you tell them, well, you know what? There's food in the refrigerator. Knowledge that there's food in the refrigerator doesn't do anything to solve their hunger. Somebody has to make their way to the refrigerator. Likely also to the cupboard or wherever else, use utensils, do some food preparation, right? There's all kinds of other things that are there. And then ultimately, you have to eat it, digest it to solve 
that hunger problem. We get that in everyday life, like in the parable of the fireman. We get that the fireman saved this woman's life, but she had a part in it too. You know, even when, when the first sermon is preached uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts 2, Acts 2, 40 and 41 says, With many other words did he, talking about Peter, testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Look, save yourselves. The fireman has come. The ladder is extended. The hole in the wall is opened up. But you're not saved. And, by the way, even once you make it to that hole and you begin to go down that ladder, you're still not saved. You know, even if you keep reading in Acts 2, Acts 2.42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. It wasn't like, hey, we've arrived. We made it to the ladder. Hi, firefighter. I'm good. But wait, hold on. Back to the parable of the fireman. Did he act alone? Fireman saves. I want to come back to something earlier we brought up briefly. What about the 911 operator's role? What if the 911 operator fails and gives the wrong address? What if the 911 operator is having a bad day because human beings have bad days, right? And miscommunicates something. What if the 911 operator tells whoever it is at the fire dispatch that this woman is stuck in the bedroom on the second floor on this side of the house and she's waiting at the window and the fireman puts the ladder up to the window. What if the communication fails and the location of the woman is wrong and that fire spreads and the smoke continues to fill that room? She's dead. That 911 operator played a huge role, didn't, didn't he or she? What about the whole fire company? You think one fireman did everything by himself? What about the tools? What about the axe? What about other tools that were used to make a hole in the wall? What about the precision? What about the skills? What about the ladder? What about the captain or the chief or whoever in the firehouse made the plan? It wasn't like they, they got to the house and just sat outside, had coffee and donuts. No. They had a plan. When they got there, they executed that plan. Now, the fireman saved her, didn't he? Yeah. He grabbed her, right? If he didn't grab her, she'd be toast, right? Well, let's think about Jesus. There are people out there in the world that when they talk about salvation, they will say, just Jesus. And again, the headline can read, Jesus saves, because the headline is true. Jesus saves. I mean, the Bible says Jesus is the way. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's the door. John chapter 10, I, I love John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is, if, if you've never read John chapter 10, do yourself a favor. Go read John chapter 10. Uh, in that context, verse 7 through 9, then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. 
By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. He, he, he's the door. He's the way. He's the hope. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's the hope. But folks, folks, listen. He did not act alone. And John 5.30, Jesus Christ himself, the chief fireman, he said, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Coming back to what we were talking about earlier in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, God the Father sent Jesus. He didn't come of his own accord. Yeah, if you read John 10, he chose to lay down his life. I mean, I am thankful to Jesus Christ for this. But you cannot just limit it and say, Jesus Christ alone. He didn't act alone. In fact, folks, not just God the Father. I, this could be a long, long lesson. I'm going to abbreviate this next point. I just want you to think about men that had a role in Jesus coming to this world and offering salvation. Think about men like Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, First three verses, the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Galatians chapter 3, some explanation here, verse 8 says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all the nations be blessed. In verses 26 through 29, says, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ... Then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What about Abraham's role in your salvation? What about one of the children of Jacob, whose name is Judah? And Genesis 49 and verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Well, Hebrews 7.14 helps us understand this. It says, It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. You know, when you read uh, Hebrews chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, it's a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, going back again to the book of Genesis, to the days of Abraham, Melchizedek's role. Uh, Melchizedek's a fascinating uh, person to study. You won't find much in the scriptures, but definitely a lot of questions. I know I have a lot of questions about it. Can't wait to find out in eternity all that there is to know. But Jesus' priesthood isn't after the tribe of Levi, like under the law of Moses. He came forth from the tribe of Judah, from the loins of Judah. Back to that promise in Genesis 49.10. Have you ever heard anybody say, I thank Judah for my salvation, or I thank Abraham for my salvation? Hmm. What about David, King David? What about Mary? And Luke 1.30-33, the combination of both of them. 
The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth the Son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. What about David being a descendant of Judah, and Jesus all the way down? In fact, folks... If you open up Matthew chapter 1 and read verses 1 through 17 or Luke chapter 3 verses 23 through 38, you've got these genealogies of men and women that are involved in the opportunity for you to be saved. And by the way, it's a much longer list than people realize, recognize, or even want to think about for some reason. They, they just want to read the headline, Salvation's in Christ. Now, the headline's true, not denying that. But it's not the whole story. There's greater details. After Jesus left this world, Luke 24, 44, beginning, he said unto them, he's talking to his disciples, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and Psalms concerning me. Then they opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it behoves Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins shall be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem to you be endued with power on high. What about the apostles? What about the Holy Spirit? What about the apostles and the Holy Spirit, folks? Without them, we don't have... The new covenant revealed. The gospel's not preached to the whole world. Without them, how could we be saved if the gospel had never been preached, right? Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. What about the planning? Yeah, kind of like the fireman that saves. I mean, he's got, he's got a leader. He's got somebody above him that said, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do, et cetera, et cetera. Romans 3, 24 and 25 says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Talking about the Father. How long was that planning in place? 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily, notice this, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. What about all of that? You know, that woman, she might have given that fireman just the biggest hug, not just holding on for dear life, but just so thankful to see him. But there were a lot of other moving parts in her salvation. And the picture on the websites and Facebook and Twitter and all the other social media things that I can never remember the names of um, and, and newspapers and, you know, maybe the local news camera. They want that, that shot of the fireman holding her coming down the ladder and that's going to become the focal point. That's going to become the focal point of the story. 
the other parts generally aren't thought about. Don't you know people do that with the scriptures? You know it's true, right? Think about the preparations that were made involving men. Even right before Jesus comes and starts teaching, there's a man. In Matthew 3, 1 through 3, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. What about John the Baptist? Hey, how about this? Have you ever thought about being thankful to the murderous Jews for fulfilling the will of God? In Acts 2, 22 and 23, when Peter's preaching to the Jews there in Jerusalem that have come for the day of Pentecost, the 50th day after Passover, he says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What about being thankful to them for killing Jesus? I know I don't like thinking about that. I don't like thinking about that at all. I don't don't look at the crucifixion of, of our Lord and our Savior, of the joint heir of eternal life. I don't like thinking about the people that killed him in any way favorable. I mean, it's kind of like if someone set that woman's house on fire. Generally speaking... You don't thank the person that set the house on fire for salvation that came through the firemen. However, it's a little different case with the Jews. It was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that they did what they did. In essence, their evil was obedience. Had they not put Jesus to death, What would happen to God's plan? If the prophecies don't come true, what happens to God's plan? You know, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus was teaching, I want you to understand the importance of all the prophecies being fulfilled in, in Christ. He says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets I am come not to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, it's like the smallest little marks in the Hebrew. It says, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What happens if it's not all fulfilled? I'm a Gentile. It's probably of 99% certainty that if you're listening to this podcast, you are Gentile. That means you are not a Jew, you're not a descendant of the children of Israel, and, and even if by chance you are, it's probably likely that you cannot trace your genealogy all the way back uh, to Jacob and find that there is an unbroken chain of succession in the bloodline. So, so you're a Gentile. Had the firemen not come through the wall, All the other work and workers involved would have been pointless. But let's not forget them. I'm not telling you to demote Jesus. Jesus is the key component. Without Jesus, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down to David, all the way down to Joseph and Mary, John the Baptist, all, all of them, they, they don't even matter without Jesus. If Mary was in modern day uh, America and she would have said, oh, how'd I get pregnant? I haven't even had sex with somebody. Oh no, and be brought to shame. And Joseph said, you know, I want to marry you, but I'm not going to marry you while you're carrying somebody else's child. Maybe he doesn't believe that he saw the angel and got a message. Maybe he doesn't believe it. And he sends her to get an abortion. The scriptures aren't fulfilled. Yeah, Jesus would have died, but the scriptures aren't fulfilled. Without him, all the other things don't matter. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, speaking to people that were Christians in Ephesus, church in Ephesus started in Acts 19, 1 through 7. He said that at that time you were without Christ. He's talking about the time where the law of Moses was in effect. You were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, non-citizens that is. Strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So if you and I lived in times past, that, that'd be us. Gentiles, lost. Without Christ, we'd have no hope. In verses 19 and 20 of that same chapter, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So see, here's credit. Here's credit to other men. But notice the emphasis in this next point. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The most important part of the building is Jesus. But he is not the only important part. But wait. I've already brought it up multiple times now. I want to emphasize something. When this woman makes it to the fireman's arms and she's up on this ladder... And she is in his arms. She's embraced. She is in the grasp of the fireman. She's not fully saved yet. Same thing with us. When we fully embrace Jesus Christ, you're still not saved yet. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 9, it says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Salvation is still ahead. When you open up 1 Corinthians chapter 15, even with all that has been done, what is to come is where we truly find our salvation. It's not just in the hole in the wall and the grasping of the firemen. It's not just I've embraced Jesus, I've obeyed the gospel. It's not just, you know, I have believed and have gone through all the measures by which I have been converted. I, 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 I've been baptized into Christ like we read earlier, Galatians 3, 26-29. Yes, yes, but you're still on the ladder until 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. It says, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. I, I just want to stop here. Most people... Focus on the death of Christ. And I'm not saying don't focus on the death of Christ. You know, the Lord's Supper is a memorial 
that Christians partake of every first day of the week, Acts 20 and verse 7. It's a memorial of the death of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 26. I'm not saying don't emphasize that, but for our salvation, it goes beyond the death. It's to the resurrection and the forward looking to our resurrection. So the text continues, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perish. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then come at the end. Ah, then come at the end. Back to 1 Peter 1, 9, right? When he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You keep reading through 1 Corinthians 15, and the point is made even clearer. Salvation is in the resurrection. When your body is changed into eternal body like his, and whatsoever spiritual state you are in, you cannot just rest. You can't find the hole in the wall. You can't make it to the ladder. You can't make it to the fireman. You can't just embrace the fireman and say, I have arrived. The apostle Paul, a faithful apostle of Jesus Christ, notice what he said, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. He said, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other thinketh he had whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrew, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He says, so if you're going to trust in the flesh, look at all my accolades. Look at my trophy case. In the flesh, as a Jew, I am the chief. Then he says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, that if I may apprehend that from which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What's Paul doing? He's looking forward. He's not saying, I've arrived. You see, a lot of people in this world, and they create their own list of steps of salvation, however short or long they may be. At some point, while still alive in the flesh, they have the I have arrived mentality. Later in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, For our conversation, meaning citizenship, is in heaven, 
from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's even able to do all things to himself. Looking forward to salvation. Not saying, I've arrived. Hey, I've made it to the hole. I've made it to the ladder. I've made it to the fireman. Good. Great. That's awesome. Glad you're not in the fire anymore. Glad the smoke is not going to destroy you. But you're still not saved. In Christ, on that ladder, embracing Him, you have to keep on holding on. John, in 2 John, it's a one-chapter book, says in verse 8, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Think about the lady on the ladder. She starts coughing and hacking, and, and she just says, You know, I, 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 I've made it far enough, and she lets go. What if the firefighter doesn't have the harness on her, doesn't have time? I mean, she just climbed through a hole that he can't fit through. He's got this big old oxygen tank and whatever else he's got on him. He's a bigger guy. This woman made it through. She made it to the fireman, but she's not saved yet. She lets go. He struggles. He stumbles. She falls to her death. How many people are there that made it to the ladder, maybe made it to Christ? but they have fallen. You know, there, there are plenty of people that would say, well, it's not possible uh, to fall away. Oh, those people are deceived, right? I mean, in the parable of the sower, Jesus himself, the chief fireman, right? He said in Luke eight thirteen, they on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy and have no root, which for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. Yeah, people fall away. Don't be the one that falls away. Don't make it to the ladder. Don't make it to the Lord. And then give up. you got to keep on holding on. I hope you've enjoyed this thought process today. Look, Jesus is the ultimate fireman. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, God hath not appointed unto us. He's talking to Christians. Wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, it's whether we live or die, we should be live together with Him. He, this is an epistle where he's already in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, talked about uh, the dead in Christ rising and, and what's going to happen in the end. So he's just continuing with the context. Uh, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are the penmen of this letter. Of course, the Holy Spirit is the author of all the Scriptures. Jesus is the ultimate fireman. But don't fail to do your part. When Paul couldn't be in Philippi because he was in prison, he said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not my presence only, but now much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputed, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world." holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Just think about that being the fireman, one of the contributors to the salvation. The Apostle Paul, imagine this. He's looking at the lady, and he says, all right, listen, I can't hold you. I need you to hold on to the ladder. I'm going to have to go down a little ahead of you. We're limited in space. I need you to hold on to the ladder. 
have three points of contact. Both feet in one hand or two hands in one foot at all times. Gives her instructions. Paul doesn't want his labor to be in vain. The fireman doesn't want his labor in vain. Jesus does not want his death to be in vain. The ultimate fireman tells us repeatedly through other men to keep on holding on until he comes again. Hope you've enjoyed the thought processes in this lesson. I wanted to follow up some of the things we talked about in Sunday's podcast with this because so very often people just refuse to see the whole picture. Just want to isolate one aspect of Scripture, focal, focal point on one thing. There's 66 books in the Bible. There's a whole lot more revealed than most people want to look at. When you honestly look at the Scriptures, it's wonderful. It's peaceful. When you realize God's part and man's part, all the working parts that come together to make this world and everything in it work right, to make eternal, eternal life come to fruition, each part being filled the way God designed it from before the foundation of the world. The wondrous wisdom and foreknowledge of God, His mighty power. I'm thankful to the ultimate fireman, Jesus Christ, but I recognize there are many moving parts. How about you? See it? See it? Great to study it and learn it and think about it, isn't it? Even, even the role of of the Jews, we could have talked about others, the Roman Empire, etc., etc. Could have went into John 18 and talked about what, what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate. He couldn't, he couldn't have done it if it wasn't God's will, essentially. Wonderful things to consider and look at. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Hope you'll tune back in on Sunday and listen to the next podcast. Till then, if you've got questions, give me a call, 915-525-5794. Email me at brian at wordsoftruth.net. You can visit the website, www.wordsoftruth.net. But like, like I like to say as often as I can think and remember, it'd be better if you can contact me in person. And if you're in a foreign country, we can Skype, we can talk, we can study. Thank you so much for listening. I hope it's been beneficial to you.